Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, July 7th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I saw Clifton Emmerheiser for a brief spell that late this afternoon, and he was actually looking much better than he had been the, the last two or three times that I saw him. I brought him a pint of chocolate ice cream, and he immediately began attacking it. He probably had it a third finished before I left, and I only stayed about 15 or 20 minutes, so hopefully he didn't spill too much of it all over the, all over the hospital bed, but that's okay as long as he's enjoying himself. We've been talking about this sixth and eighth day creation heresy at, at least last week and and now this week and I'm certain also next Saturday unless something more demanding crops up I pray I'll get back to the protocols of the learned elders of Satan soon and I may even start preparing that this week so that I could do a segment in the near future Tonight it's the only true Adam of Genesis part two. And I have a few things tonight that are quite different for for me anyway. Perhaps we'll see. The only true Adam of Genesis part two. It never ceases to amaze me. How many times I may state something that is based upon at least two or three witnesses in Scripture, along with studies of word meanings in the original languages, along with contextual support, and often even historical support. Yet people simply dismiss it, because it goes against something which they were taught in the past. <clears throat> they are so confident in their supposed knowledge that they absolutely refuse to consider the possibility that they may be mistaken. They are so emotionally attached to their teachers, who are only fallible men, that they will not even examine the facts which underlie a contrary opinion. I run into this constantly, and nowhere in Scripture do I see this phenomenon more often than in discussions of the creation of Adam, which is described in Genesis chapters 1 and two. Many people who learned their Christian identity from Bertrand Compare, Wesley Swift, or Sheldon Emery are so certain that there was an eighth day creation, maybe Pete Peters is another one. They are so certain that there was an eighth day creation of Adam, distinct from the explicit sixth day creation which we have in our Bible that they simply refuse to listen to any contrary evidence whatsoever. There is nothing wrong with being loyal to our teachers, but real loyalty would require studying behind them and being able to prove everything which they told us for ourselves. For this, Christ himself never said, just take my word for it, but rather he always said, search the scriptures. 
Real loyalty would also require a dialogue when different results are obtained through that study. This is why there are science labs in high schools so that students can prove through demonstration the things which they hear in the lectures rather than merely taking those things for granted. If you are the only student whose metal rod did not expand when it was heated, you might have some great new discovery, or perhaps you only made an error in your measurements, and that is much more likely to be the case. Pondering this situation this morning, I have here in a box in my office closet a short stack of some of the mail which I received from Lorraine Swift and others over the years I spent in prison. Lorraine sometimes wrote on paper, but usually she wrote shorter notes on greeting cards. I found one card where she wrote so much that she used a piece of paper to finish her letter, both sides of it. I will reproduce it and the other notes from Lorraine that I am going to mention here. I will have them linked in with the notes to this podcast when they are posted at Christagenia later this evening. This first note that I want to mention was dated for October 13th, 2004, which is about a year before her death. I believe she died in November 2005. At the beginning of this note, there's a reference to an old song titled, 11 more months and 10 more days. She was startled that I had recalled or recollected this song. I can't say how it was familiar to me. I don't remember. Maybe I just spent too much time in jail. But it can be found in several versions on YouTube. I'll have a link here to a version by Sons of the Pioneers sort of like a bluegrass country band, I guess. In this note, among other things, Lorraine, who often shared with me brief recollections from her past, told me the following. She said, and I will have this in PDF format, in Lorraine Swift's handwriting, of course, <laughs> posted at Christagenia tonight. She said, regarding Bert and Wesley, Bert Compray, Bertrand Compray and Wesley Swift. Regarding Bert and Wesley, Inez did his research, Inez Compray, meaning Bertrand Compray's wife, and Wes read a lot and had a photographic memory. I would hope that knowledge would increase as time goes on. In other words, Lorraine Swift expected future other Christian identity teachers to understand more than Bert and Wesley had. I would hope that knowledge would increase as time goes on. At one time, believe it or not, the scene passed before Wes's, Wes, she just calls him Wes, Wes's eyes, and all he did was to describe it. That's when he talked fast. Lorraine mentioned another woman in this letter, Jean Snyder who corresponded with me much more than Lorraine herself did. Jean was a lifelong friend of both couples, the Swifts and the Comperets, and often corroborated for me things which Lorraine had also told me, 
in the course of her own correspondence. I hope one day to get all of my correspondence with these women posted in appropriate places. They were both pretty much Christian identity icons for a very long time. Jean was the um, one who compiled, transcribed, and published the rather popular book of Bertrand Compare's sermons, which is sold by Kingdom Identity Ministries to this very day. So Inez Compare did Bertrand's research, according to Lorraine Swift. And Wesley Swift simply had visions of things passed before his eyes. I do not want to assail Bertrand Compare, but perhaps he may have found greater things if he did his own research. Wesley Swift I have criticized more extensively, and there are reasons why I personally have always upheld a need for mental hygiene. Not to read things such as the Kabbalah or the writings of the Neoplatonist. The Neoplatonist, Neoplatonists, I'm sorry, with which Wesley Swift was quite enamored. He was always citing those things. I wouldn't read them because I believe that a clean mind is a sound mind. When you follow a teacher, you had better study behind him in order to be able to assess the value of what you are following. <clears throat> I found another card this morning. I actually looked through quite a few, probably half a dozen, and, and picked out five. Five quotes from Lorraine for this little introduction. I found another card this morning dated November 29th, 2001. It was probably one of the first cards that Lorraine had sent me, where in part she had said, thank you for your editing Emma Heiser's material. I think he is doing an exceptional job with research. She had also been, along with Gene Snyder, avid readers of Clifton's writing. He, Clifton began his ministry in May of 1998. On January 2nd, <coughs> 2002, she repeated that compliment and said, Clifton Emmerheiser does remarkable in-depth research. Then, several years later, almost three years later, on November 4th, 2004, she wrote in part, I appreciate your writing about David and not agreeing completely with Wes and Bert. Knowledge is supposed to increase. Not all ministries are the same, as you know. I really appreciate Amheiser's in-depth research and your help the end of my quote. The David she mentioned is David Moore, with whom I had some serious disagreements. From what I remember, David took Wesley Swift's New Age syncretism to a whole new level, and I was quite incredulous. Then again, on January 7th, 2005, speaking of our critical review of Compare's 14-part series on the Revelation, Lorraine wrote, I'm... I missed a word here, typing. I think she said, I'm glad, or I'm happy. You and Clifton are doing Bert's Revelation. He was a good man, 
and a good friend. He used to deer hunt with us, often getting lost. The irony does not escape me, and that is all I will say about that. <laughs> Lorraine Swift telling me that Compare used to deer hunt with her and Wesley and often got lost. <laughs> lost in the woods. <laughs> I did not receive much from Lorraine after that last card mentioned here, as her health took a seriously bad turn, and she was committed to a nursing home shortly thereafter. She did not survive to see 2006. But Lorraine was totally committed to her husband's ministry. Even 35 years after Wesley Swift had died, and she freely sent Wesley's booklets to prisoners right up until the months before she became terminally ill. But my point here, and I believe she developed acute leukemia, I was informed of that in a letter sent to me by Kingdom Identity Ministries sometime in September of 2005 where they said that she wouldn't live more than two or three more months, and she did not. But my point here is that Lorraine Swift had not one bone of contention with either Clifton or I for seeking to advance beyond her husband's work and seeking to correct some of his errors. So if Lorraine Swift can humbly appreciate new developments in Christian identity research, and new conclusions based on those developments, then just about anyone else should also be able to appreciate them, and at least look into them. The only obstacle is pride, and this is what I find to be the prominent obstacle with those who cannot accept that the so-called sixth and eighth day creation theory is just plain wrong. Ever since the dawn of the British Israel movement, when scholars began to conclude from the young science of archaeology, and I'm talking about the 1850s here, that the people of Europe originated in Mesopotamia and the Levant, and that many of them could indeed be identified with the so-called lost tribes of Israel, Ever since then have men sought to distinguish our white and Adamic race from the other races of the planet. So, without any proof, but merely taking for granted that Yahweh created all of the races as we know them from our own brief historical experience, many men have come to insist that the Genesis chapter 1 Adam is a separate and earlier creation than the Genesis chapter 2 Adam. By this they imagine that the Bible describes the creation of all races of so-called man, while at the same time the white race can be viewed as being separate and special. Now, I was once a neophyte to Christian Identity Studies back in 1997 <clears throat> and all this seemed to make sense to me I hadn't the resources yet to study it then I had a friend a man who had been studying much longer than I had actually um, 
I owe him a debt of gratitude for typing my original New Testament translations. His name was David Gray. David showed me a better way to understand Genesis through much discussion in which Clifton was also involved. And after a great deal of study, I realized that he was correct, and that the six and eight day creation theory, which it was my first instinct to defend, could not possibly be correct. By David's arguments, I was forced to make the realization that while Copper and Swift helped me a lot, they were wrong about this particular issue. Yet David had only about half of the evidences and considerations that I now have after another 18 years of study. For that I am grateful. I am grateful that I was divested of the 6th and 8th day error so early in my own studies. And soon after that, when I was studying the Greek of Peter and Jude, if I remember correctly, I arrived at the conclusion that Yahweh could not have created the non-white races at all, at least as we now know them. I concluded from that, and from the parables of Christ, that they must all be corruptions of Yahweh's original creation. I think I came to that conclusion in 2003 or 2004. And Clifton came to it along with me as we had continued to, discuss, to study and discuss the subject with one another. In fact, we still study and discuss it with one another. Now, I am still certain that this theory is true. I believe that I have proven it through scripture. And there is a collection of presentations at Christogenia containing those proofs, titled, the biblical standing of the non-Adamic or non-white races, which includes five parts of my long Pragmatic Genesis series. We have considered a greater biblical context than merely the enmity of Genesis chapter 3 and view the other races as branches on that tree of the knowledge of good and evil which represents the fallen angels and their rebellion and the corruption of Yahweh's original creation. The first proof of that is in the fact that the goat nations ultimately share the same fate as the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Their destiny reveals their origin. But here, our purpose is not to prove that the other races of men are ancient corruptions. Rather, we must demonstrate that our Bible describes the creation, by Yahweh, of only one race of man, which is the white race. So last week, I presented a two-part essay by Clifton Emmerheiser titled The Only True Adam of Genesis 1 verses 26 through 27 and Genesis 2 7. In those papers, aside from a few other things, Clifton mostly focused on the fact that only one race, our white race, can have the image of God 
and therefore Genesis chapters 1 and 2 must both be describing the creation of the same white race. The Genesis 2 man is not said to have the image of God, only the Genesis 1 man. There I also mentioned a later paper which Clifton wrote titled Adam in the Hebrew in Genesis and explained that I have already expanded on that article in the initial segment, the initial segment opening my Pragmatic Genesis series. Here I am going to present only a few concepts from that material along with Clifton's paper. In order to completely understand our scriptures, or at least as completely as we as men are capable of understanding them, one needs to comprehend a great deal of history, as well as the complete scriptures themselves, both Old and New Testaments. As we have also often said, since Christ himself had attested that he came to reveal things which were kept secret since the foundation of the world. We as Christians should know that Genesis cannot be understood apart from or independently of an understanding of the teachings of Christ. So when I decided for myself, maybe 15 years ago, to begin writing essays in order to defend my own Christian identity profession. One of the first things I wrote was a rather concise paper titled The Race of Genesis 10. I did that in order to illustrate that all of the nations of Genesis chapter 10, which are all of the known surviving descendants of Adam, were originally white. And I assert confidently that such a fact is indeed known from ancient history. The advocates of the sixth and eighth day creation theory imagine that there were somehow two creations of Adam representing distinct races of people and that our white race descended from the second of these two creations which is described in Genesis chapter 2. So if one is to imagine that there is another race descended from a separate Genesis chapter 1 creation of Adam, where may one find it? Only in the non-white races. And that is exactly what many of the advocates of the 6th and 8th day creation theory actually claim. That black, yellow, red, and brown people all fall under that first category of so-called man, or small a Adam, as the Hebrew word for the creation of man in Genesis chapter 1 in verses 26 and 27 is Adam. Rather ignorantly, the same advocates of that theory will turn around in Genesis chapter 2 and swear that the word Adam in Hebrew means to show blood in the face, which is how James Strong defined the verb, the verb form of the word, in his original concordance. Then they will tell you that the other races do not show blood in the face, all the while insisting that the other races of the man, the Hebrew Adam, created on the sixth day in Genesis chapter 1. 
their failure to see the blatant contradictions in their own arguments and the discrepancies in their own teachings never ceases to amaze me. We accept Strong's definition. Adam, as a verb, can mean to show blood in the face, or as an adjective, to be ruddy. It bears those meanings because its true root word is the Hebrew word for blood, which is dam, Strong's number 1818. That is something Strong had failed to record, but which I had noticed on my own in my first few weeks of study in Christian identity, when I had nothing to read but a King James Bible I procured from the prison chapel, and a Strong's Concordance. The concordance was borrowed, and I never returned it. After all these years, it is still sitting here beside my desk. And if the man I borrowed it from ever listens to this, as I lost touch with him many years ago, I pray he contacts me one day so that, over after 20 years, I can finally return it. I must admit that I still do actually use it, but there are larger hardcover editions which I now have from Clifton's library. So I would be happy to return this one and actually be relieved. The advocates of the sixth and eighth day creation theory claim that somehow the word Adam in Genesis chapter 1 is a different man than the Ha-Adam or the Eth-Ha-Adam, and we'll discuss these words shortly, of Genesis chapter 2. So, in effect, they're claiming that adding articles, prepositions, and other forms of grammar to a noun somehow makes that noun a different entity than if the articles and prepositions were not added. So if I go to the store today and buy a ball, and the next day, I go out to my yard and I throw the ball for my dog. That cannot be the same ball that I had just purchased the day before, as a ball must be a different ball than the ball. This is, of course, ludicrous. But this, in effect, is exactly what they are professing. So in Clifton's paper, Adam in the Hebrew in Genesis, Clifton reproduces a lot of Hebrew sentences highlighting the Hebrew words for Adam, along with the accompanying articles and prepositions, and illustrating that they are only different grammatical parts of speech referring to the same entity. This is somewhat technical, but I will try to make it as understandable as possible. Clifton opens his paper with a proclamation that the Hebrew clearly proves that the man at Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 is the same man as that of Genesis chapter 2 verses 7 and 8. So he opens Adam in the Hebrew in Genesis by saying the following and he has a list of Hebrew and English passages here. It's not too long. The following are both the Hebrew from Bible works, a reproduction of the Hebrew text, and the English from the King James Version, which clearly proves, not merely suggests, that the man, or Adam, of Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 is the same man, or Adam, 
of Genesis chapter 2 verses 7 and 8 and the other verses presented here. And I know that this is a childish argument, but over the last 20 years I have been confronted with this argument and so has Clifton on many occasions. Clifton skips Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 here. I'll notice that a little later. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, he reproduces the Hebrew and reading right to left, right, because it's backwards. The third word in the sentence is the Hebrew letter, the Hebrew word F, and the dash, which we will explain later, and the word or the phrase Ha Adam. Now the Ha is only represented by one letter, an H. We transliterate it and pronounce it as Ha when we write in English. And then the word Adam, which is only represented by three letters, reading from right to left. The Aleph, the Daleph, and the Mem, which is A-D-M. The, the second A is missing. We have to fill it in in English. So it's F-Ha-Adam. And that's created, that, that's translated as man in Genesis 1.27, where we read in our King's, King James Version. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. That man, there's no article in it, even though there is a definite article in the Hebrew. The King James left one out in their translation. If we wanted to be proper about this translation, we would have, so God created the man in his own image, because there's a definite article there. It's not a ball, it's the ball. It's not man, it's the man, a particular man. Clifton did not reproduce Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 here where the creation of man is proposed and the Hebrew form is only Adam. I'm sorry, Ha-Adam, Ha-Adam. It's not F-Ha-Adam. Now we go to Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 and the word man appears twice. And about the fifth Hebrew word we see F Ha Adam and the last the third from the last Hebrew word is Ha Adam without the F and it's important to notice this in Genesis 2 7 we see the same two forms Hebrew grammatical forms, which are used in both Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 1.26. They're just used in Genesis 2.7 in the reverse order. And the Lord God formed man, that's F-Ha-Adam, of the dust of the ground. And then at the end of Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, it says, And man became a living soul, that is, Ha-Adam. In both cases, if we wanted to be grammatically correct, it would say, and the Lord God formed the man, and the man became a living soul, because there is a definite article in both cases.
So the King James translators were a little... If we wanted to hold them to absolute precision, they were a little fast and loose here, right? But who the hell would imagine that people would try to split hairs and make different races out of the same atom? Or different creations out of the same atom? It's just beyond me. I mean, if I was translating Genesis, I could have never seen that coming because it's beyond common sense. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, we see that form again. Eth ha adam. And the eth has a little dash after it. And then we see the heth, the letter heth, or the letter h, and the word adam. Eth dash ha adam. That's the way it's always written. And that gives us, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, and there he put the man, they included the article that time, whom he had formed. In Genesis 2.15, we see the Eth-Ha-Adam form, where it says, and the Lord God took the man, so it properly has the article. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, we see the Eth-Ha-Adam form, where it says, so he drove out the man. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, we see that Eth-Ha-Adam form, where it says, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, we see Eth-Ha-Adam, where it says, I will destroy man whom I have created. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, we see that form, Eth-Ha-Adam where it says, For in, in the image of God made he man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the, in the image of God made he man. Clifton will expound on that at the end of his paper. That is the end of Clifton's examples. And in them we have seen three grammatical forms for the same word, which we will transliterate as Adam, that's just the word all by itself, the noun. Ha-adam, that's the same noun with a definite article. And eth-ha-adam, the same word with the definite article and another prefix, which is the word eth. And we will wait on that until Clifton dis defines it and describes it later on. Now, Clifton, after examining these forms of the word Adam throughout the early chapters of Genesis says, some try to cite the Strong's Concordance, Hebrew number 120, to prove that the man at Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and Genesis chapter 2 verses 6 and 7 are not the same man, along with some other ridiculous arguments. Strong states the following for Hebrew word Adam at number 120. From 119, ruddy, this word is an adjective, it's not even a noun, right? So we should keep that in the back of our heads. This is the adjectival form of Adam. Strong's broke his numbers down by the part of speech in which they were used, as I explained last week in more detail. From 119, ruddy, i.e., 
a human being, an individual or the species, mankind, etc. And now there's a list of words after this. There's a colon and a dash. The colon and a dash are very important to consider in Strong's definitions. There's a colon and a dash, and then we read a bunch of symbols with a list of words. Capital X, and it says another. A plus sign, and it says hypocrite. Another plus sign, and it says common sort. Another X, and it says low. Man, meaning of low degree or person. And that's the end of the Strong's definition. When citing this passage by Strong, Clifton says... They will point out the additions of the words another, common sort, low man, meaning a below degree, or person. And here Clifton explains the construction of a definition in Strong's Hebrew, le Strong's Hebrew lexicon, which I shall augment in various places. Clifton says, had they read Strong's signs employed, it's a section at the front of the Strong's Hebrew and Chaldee Dictionary, and that section, reading that section is instrumental to understanding the definitions in the dictionary. Had they read Strong's signs employed, they might have realized that everything in his definitions, which comes after the colon and the dash, the symbol with the colon and a long dash, is only a list of some of the renderings by the King James Version translators. In other words, Strong supplied a list of words that the King James Version used to translate every particular Hebrew word after that little colon and dash. But that's not part of his definition. Clifton says, and one needs to find those passages to understand the context. In other words, why the King James translators use that particular rendering. Strong's definition of all the Hebrew and Greek words are previous to. Strong's definitions are previous to the colon and the dash. And the list of King James Version renderings is not a part of his definition. Now, Clifton gives a short list of other aspects of a Strong's lexicon definition, which are explained in that same place in his lexicon under that section, Signs Employed. And it defines how Strong's understood these King James renderings. A plus sign denotes a rendering in the authorized version, the King James Version, of one or more Hebrew words in connection with the one under consideration. In other words, a word that isn't even really in the text at all. A multiplication sign denotes a rendering in the AV, the authorized version, that results from an idiom peculiar to the Hebrew. A degree sign appended to the Hebrew word denotes a vowel pointing corrected from that of the text. This mark is set in Hebrew Bibles over syllables in which the vowels at a margin have been inserted instead of those properly belonging to the text. A parenthesis in the renderings from the King James Version in that little list of words at the end of every definition after the colon and the long dash, right, denotes a word or syllable sometimes given in connection with the principal word to which it is annexed.
Brackets in the rendering from the authorized version denotes the inclusion of an additional word in Hebrew or italics at the end of a rendering from the authorized version denotes an explanation of the variations from the usual form. And Clifton says, so one can see clearly that the parts of the definition for Adam which we see in Strong's number 120 where it has the capital X and another and the plus sign and hypocrite and common sort or low man or person of low degree is definitely not part of Strong's definition. And it's not. That's simply how the King James thought they should translate certain words, the, the word in certain contexts. That doesn't mean it's necessarily right that they did that. Clifton says these are only terms that the King James Version translators chose to use, rightly or wrongly. For instance, for the rendering of another, and of course Strong's number 120 is Adam, it doesn't mean another. It never means another. Clifton says, for instance, for the rendering of another, all we need to go is to all we need to do is to go to Jeremiah chapter 32 verse 20, where it says, which hast set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even to this day, and in Israel, and among other men, and hast made thee a name as at this day. And Clifton says, notice that the King James Version, Clifton underlined the words other men. And the word other is in italics in the King James Version. Notice that the King James Version translators have added other in italics. Jeremiah was not speaking about blacks or Mongolians here. The Strong's number for men at this verse is 120, so it can only be speaking of white Adamic men. It is clear with this instance that we better stick with Strong's definition of ruddy rather than the King James Version rendering. The King James just made up their own definition of Adam in that particular verse is what Clifton is contending. And he's correct. That word other doesn't belong there. On the words common sort, which is one of the renderings that Strong attributes to the King James Version for Hebrew number 120. On the words common sort, we find them in the King James Version at Ezekiel 23.42 thusly. And the voice of the multitude being at ease was with her. And with the men of the common sort were brought Sabians from the wilderness, which put bracelets upon their hands, and beautiful crowns upon their heads. Here the words common sort are numbers 7230 and 120, thus describing white men. And actually that phrase common sort, the word 7230, means multitude, abundance, or greatness. So I would have to really examine the Hebrew to come up with a valid translation. But this one isn't valid at all. Clifton's saying that it's describing white men, but not necessarily men who are under the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as they were Sabians.
So even white men not under the covenant were considered as a common sort, I would say by the King James translators. Not by, that's not really what the text of Ezekiel is saying. And of course the Sabians were originally white and descended from the Genesis 10 nations. So Clifton correctly concludes, you can see from this that we have to be careful how we use the Strong's Concordance. And that's definitely true. And I don't want to take any credit from Clifton. I'm not stealing something that I'm not due. But I remember writing to him back in 1999 or early 2000 when I first started proofreading for him and providing a very lengthy explanation of Strong's signs employed because he too was originally mistaking the uses of words by the King James Version translators as part of Strong's actual definitions. It's a common error. I still may have a copy of that letter. But if Clifton could make the error, any of us can. It is wise to read the prefaces and appendixes of any reference work before using it, so that one knows how to use it. While Strong is not the ultimate authority for the Hebrew language, he did seek to do us a sincere favor by creating a concise and easy-to-use reference for Hebrew and Greek words in the King James Version. But we must use it with care, and according to Strong's own instructions. Continuing with Clifton, under the subtitle, more on the Hebrew name Adam. Not being familiar with the true nature of the Hebrew language, some resort to developing their own arbitrary translations from the Strong's Hebrew and Greek, I'm sorry, Hebrew and Chaldee dictionary by picking and choosing at random whichever Strong's Hebrew number that supports their defective supposition. And that's exactly what they do. They see Strong's number 119 for a word, and because Strong has entries for the word Adam from every word from 119 through 124, these people actually think that they can choose the definitions of any one of them. And that's simply not true, because I as I explained last week, Strong's at Hebrew number 119, 120, 121, 122, 123, 124, he has one of those entries is for verbs, one of those entries is for adjectives, one of those entries is for nouns, and the others are for the various proper nouns that the word was translated into, like Adam, Edom, and Odam. So we have to understand how strong constructed his dictionary before we actually try to use it. Most people don't bother to do that. They don't bother to read the section on signs employed. Clifton says, let's first examine what the Hebrew really says. And examine we shall. I'm having a keyboard problem. I apologize. 
to demonstrate that the man at Genesis 127 and the man at Genesis 2-7 are the same person. They are both derived from the same identical Hebrew phrase. Clifton actually had word in his original re- reading, but it's a phrase. But that's okay. That's forgivable. The word or the phrase is eth ha adam. Therefore, to separate these two passages as being two separate creations has absolutely no foundation whatsoever. Not only is this same particular Hebrew word used here, but it is also used in Genesis chapter 2 verse 8, chapter 2 verse 15, chapter 3 verse 24, chapter 6 verses 6 and 7, chapter 9 verse 6, Deuteronomy 5.24, 2 Chronicles chapter 6, Ecclesiastes 7.29, Isaiah 6.12, Jeremiah 27.5, Zephaniah 1.3, and Zechariah 11.6. I'm sure it's probably in there a few more times than that. Clifton says, let's now break this Hebrew word, eth ha-adam, this Hebrew phrase is what it actually is, down into its component parts, reversing its order from right to left to left to right, where eth ha-adam, and Clifton, we have to actually see his symbols because he spelled it right to left as it's copied from the software and the Windows and Linux software automatically put Hebrew typefaces right to left you can't even change it if you wanted to Clifton describes the F first which is on the right hand side of the word F and then the little dash between the F and the Ha is called a Makaf M-A-Q-A-F is the grammatical name for this little dash. And it has a meaning. And then the ha, the letter heth, or h, and then the word atom, which is aleph, daleph, a-d-m, or mame in Hebrew. This is what is known, Clifton says, as a common noun, Masculine singular singular absolute. According to the electronic program BibleWorks, if you hold your little cursor in BibleWorks over Greek or Hebrew words, it'll tell you, not all the time, but usually it'll tell you the part of speech. Each one of these component parts of this Hebrew word is very important to fully understand the meaning of the noun or name in this case. Let's now consider each one of these elements of this noun in their proper order. So Clifton is going to describe this this prefix, F, and actually it really doesn't mean much in English, except to a translator. To a translator it's important. Clifton says, this is the Hebrew number 853 in the Strong's Concordance. F apparently contracted from number 226 in the demonstrative sense of entity properly self but generally used to point out more definitely the object of a verb or preposition and it could be rendered even or namely if you wished but 
Strong says that as such it's unrepresented in English. This is a word in the Hebrew language that, as I said, is important to a translator because the F informs the translator of what the object or the verb of, of the verb or preposition is. But in English we wouldn't need to repeat the F because we would construct our sentence properly so that we recognize that the F informs us that this noun that follows it is the object of a verb or preposition. Greek has an accusative case to inform us of the same thing. We translate Greek and we understand that nouns in the accusative case are the object of a verb, but we don't translate the case itself into English because English doesn't have a good representation of that case, right? We, in English, we understand it from the context, the construction of the sentence. Bill throws the ball. If we wrote those two nouns in a sentence in Greek and both nouns were in the nominative case and ball was not in the accusative case, we might misunderstand that to read the ball throws Bill. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I hope you can follow that. So Greek has cases to help us determine what gets thrown and who does the throwing, where English we just have word order in, in a very many instances. That's all we have is word order. In Greek you could jumble up the words. It don't matter what order they're in. As long as ball is in the accusative case and bill is in a nominative case, you can't misunderstand it no matter what order the words are in. So that's just the way different languages work. Clifton, continuing to speak about F, says, as we can see, F is simply used to point out, more definitely, the object of a verb or preposition. To get a better concept of the Hebrew word F, let's go to Strong's number 226. And Strong defines 226, which is spelled ALF, very similarly, probably from 225 in the sense of appearing, a signal, literal or figurative, as a flag, beacon, monument, omen, prodigy, evidence. And then in the King James Version, after that colon with the long dash, Strong has mark, miracle, ensign, sign or token. So that's how the King James Version translated this word alf right? So we can see why F points the way to the object of a verb or preposition. It's making a sign for us, right? Because that's the word it was derived from. That's what it means. Clifton says, the enhanced Strong's lexicon found in the Libronics Digital Library states in part on number 226, that it occurs 79 times, and that the King James Version translates it as sighing or sighing 60 times, token 14 times, ensign twice, miracles twice, and mark once. Clifton responds, after giving a list of actual definitions of the word, sign, signal, a distinguishing mark, a banner, a remembrance, a miraculous sign, an 
omen, a warning, a token ensign standard, miracle or proof. Wow. Alf is the word that's used in Genesis chapter 4 verse 15 where it says that God set a mark upon Cain and that's where it's translated as mark. That's the only place in the King James Version it appears as mark. Clifton responds and says, I only included this date around Strong's number 226 for Strong's number 853 stated that it was apparently contracted. Eth was apparently contracted from this other word, alf, in the demonstrative sense of entity. Then he says, this dissertation on the word eth has been given for those who are unfamiliar with the Hebrew language and are unaware that it exists. Inasmuch as it is used in conjunction with the term man, articulated as Adam, in both Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, as presented here, its use should be taken into account. The word eth is used 689 times in the book of Genesis alone, and a grand total of 7,302 times in the entire Old Testament. The problem is, I am not aware that there are any interlinear Bibles or other Bibles with the Strong's number above each word, which designate where the occurrences of F are. The only source which I know of that one can find this information is on the internet at the Q Bible website. And here I must note that the Q Bible website was created by the same individual who created Israel Elect, a site which is now in my possession, thanks to Gerald Mosley, who's in the chat tonight. So Israel Elect has been preserved by that means. Q Bible seems to have fallen into a state of disrepair. Clifton's original link is broken, and I'm not certain if the site is being developed or even maintained. While the individual who created it worked hard to do so, it employs outdated technology, which is difficult to maintain. And now, many years later, better Bible software tools are available, rendering QBible rather obsolete, in my opinion. Now Clifton continues... There are only two other ways by which one can find such information. Learn to read the Hebrew and recognize each F when it is seen, or use an electronic Bible program such as BibleWorks. For those who don't have a computer or an, or an electronic program such as BibleWorks, now we must remember that many of Clifton's readers were prisoners at this time, I will describe how this can be done. hoping that it won't be too boring, but can be verified by those having this program. One would go to the Bible, to the Bible works, Hebrew Old Testament, at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and place the cursor on each Hebrew word. And when it, exp- when it displays the initials NM, man, mankind, the NM means noun, masculine, one will know that one has the right word. 
It is the same word as enlarged and displayed in this document. Now, all these reproductions of the Hebrew that Clifton has reproduced here, wherever we see the word Adam or the associated phrases, ha-adam, eth-ha-adam, Clifton put them in bright red type. Here, Clifton, so that they can't be missed. Here, Clifton is trying to explain how to find the Hebrew word for Adam in the BibleWorks software for those who do not read Hebrew. But the important thing to note is this, and I know these details must be boring you to death, I apologize. Clifton wants his readers, he wants his readers to know how to study behind him so that they can examine and prove these things for themselves. It is not our objective to simply preach and, and beg our listeners to believe us. We want to show our listeners exactly how we arrive at our conclusions and why we make the assertions which we profess. So what Clifton is attempting here, whether it's successful or not, is a noble cause. He wants you to know how to check up on him. And that's the way we should be. Clifton says, then by placing the cursor on various parts of the word, one can recognize the particle F, the particle article, ha, we'll get to ha in a few minutes, and Adam in the Hebrew. Then one can go one step farther by highlighting the entire Hebrew word and right-clicking, and a box will open, and then select String Search, and every time that word appears, with the same parts of speech, each occurrence will be listed along the side. It's real easy in the Hebrew or the Greek in Bible works, or the, or the English for that matter, to find every occurrence of a word in the whole Bible. And with Hebrew and Greek, you can choose whether to find every occurrence of, the, of a particular form of each word or every occurrence of the word as a whole, regardless of what form it appears in. It's an invaluable tool, and I happen to use it in the preparation of every single one of my Bible podcasts. Because when I was in prison doing everything by hand, it would take me a week to write a paper like Broken Cisterns or the Seed of Inheritance doing everything by hand. It would take a whole day sometimes to do a word study on a Greek word in the Septuagint with a Greek concordance for the Septuagint. It would still take a whole day. With Bible works, I could do the same thing in... 20 or 30 minutes sometimes so the software is um, very useful for, for my studies and Clifton was using it for his back when he wrote this probably if I had to guess maybe I don't know 2004, 5, 6, 7 I, I don't know pick a year I don't know I don't know when he wrote this pre that this exact paper 
Clifton says, my motive for explaining the use of electronic data in Bible programs is so that all of those people out there who are dreaming up new ways to twist the scripture will become aware that they need to do some serious study before they put their proverbial foot in their mouth. There is another electronic source called eSword, which shows only part of the Hebrew words, which contain the particle F, and therefore it cannot be trusted by the serious Bible student, and I don't recommend it for this purpose. But it does have it right on Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where we see each English word, and then following that, we see a Strong's number in brackets, and Clifton recreates that here. We see 853 before the word man, and 120 after the word man. So even though there's no corresponding English word for F in the the passage, and there isn't because it doesn't need to be translated, the eSword program in this particular passage informs us that it's present in the Hebrew. So that's good. Another problem with small particle words in the Hebrew is that Strong's didn't bother recording where a lot of them were. He just didn't bother that that's beyond the scope of his concordance. It just is. It's studying at that level is beyond the purpose of his concordance. In Strong's concordance, you can't tell the case of, of a noun. You can't tell the tense of a verb. There's a lot of things about the original language that are beyond the scope and purpose of Strong's concordance. And I learned real quick in in my studies that if I was going to really understand what the Bible was telling me that I had to go get Hebrew texts and more comprehensive Hebrew lexicons and original language sources so I back in 1998-99-2000 I spent a great deal of time simply trying to find out what books I should use for my studies, being in prison and and being pretty much isolated from places like Barnes & Nobles and Amazon.com and things like that. Clifton says it should now be evident that attempting to make an assessment on Old Testament passages without first knowing about the Hebrew ha, f, and other such particles could be hazardous and it certainly can. Now Clifton explains the little dash seen between the words in Hebrew and notably for our purposes it always appears between the words F and the phrase Ha-Adam and that little dash is called a makaf that's spelled M-A- Q-A-F. Clifton says, we will now address what is known as the makaf. The symbol which is called makaf, the dash, is the equivalent of a hyphen for ancient Hebrew. Just like the hyphen in English, the makaf in Hebrew is used to connect two words. To give you an illustration in English, I often write of a Canaanite Jew. 
In doing so, I'm showing a connection between the Canaanites of the Bible and a minor few of the Judahites who had racially mixed with the Canaanites. In other words, since these half-breed Canaanite Judahites have something in common to both the Judahites and the Canaanites, I simply use a hyphen to identify them as both Canaanite and Jew, or Canaanite Jews. In Strong's Dictionary of the Hebrew Bible, under Hebrew Articulation, he says in number 5, Makaf, or Makaf, M-A-Q-Q-E-P-H. Makaf, like a hyphen, unites words only for purposes of pronunciation, by removing the primary accent from all except the last of them. In other words, it doesn't change the meanings of those words, right? And it says, but it does not affect their meaning or their grammatical construction. Clifton, responding to Strong's explanation, says, yes, it would not affect the meaning of their individual grammatical construction, but surely the dash, the macath, denotes some sort of interrelationship between the two words. If Strong's is correct here, it would place the accent on Adam rather than on Ha or Ha-Adam. This would make Adam very important, and at Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and chapter 2 verse 7, it does indeed articulate as Adam. Clifton's trying to say that the, the, it's the same word with the same signification in both Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Now Clifton proceeds to describe the definite article, which we transliterate into English as ha for pronunciation purposes, but it's really only the letter H. So how they actually did pronounce it in ancient Hebrew, not these damn Jews, they only speak Yiddish, in ancient Hebrew is not readily determined. Clifton says, next to be addressed is what is known as the particle article, the single letter H. In order to understand the importance of an article in grammar, it would be well to review the use of the article in English. <clears throat> Sadly, some are lacking knowledge of the importance of the part of speech called the article. In Practical English, Chapter 2, entitled The Parts of Speech, on page 6, we find a definition for what articles consist of in English. The words a, an, and the are adjectives, although in grammar they are called articles. An article is a specialized adjective, right? The word the is called the definite article. The words a and an are called the indefinite articles. When we say the book on the table, we are pointing out a particular book on a particular table. When we say, I have a book, no specific or particular book is indicated. Clifton responds and says, surely most of you who are reading this paper and remember your English classes in school know that this description of the English definite and indefinite articles is correct. Upon realizing this, you will immediately be wary once you observe people making such an error. Like the English definite article, both the Hebrew and Greek articles modify the subject to a noun. That's the role of an adjective. The Reader's Digest Great Encyclopedic Dictionary on page 1933 has this to say about what an article is. Article, a special form of adjective. The is called the definite article, 
A and an are indefinite articles. The Encyclopedia Americana, 1948 edition, volume 1, page 357, says this of the article, and Clifton's just beating this to death, I'm sorry, article in grammar, a part of speech used before nouns to limit or define their application. In the English language, a or an is the indefinite article, the later form being used to form before a vowel sound. And the V is the definite article. The English indefinite article is really a modified form of the numeral adjective one. So the German ein and the French un stand for the numeral and the article. <coughs> the indefinite article. There are traces in various languages showing that the definite article was originally a pronoun. Thus, the English the is closely akin to both this and that. The Latin language has neither the definite nor the indefinite article. The Greek has the definite article. The Hebrew and Arabic definite article is prefixed to its noun. While, on the other hand, in the Syriac and Chaldee, it was affixed to the noun, as it is in the Icelandic. In the Scandinavian language, the definite article is appended to the end of the word as hus et, the house. There is no article in Russian. Why is it, Clifton asks, why is it so necessary to stress the use of the article when we study the scriptures? For one reason, if we don't know about the use of the article, whether it is present or absent, we cannot know what the scriptures are saying. Not only do we have to know what the article means in English, but we have to understand the article in Hebrew and Greek. With the definite article, the scriptures are speaking of a genuine person, eth ha-adam, a particular Adam. In Strong's Dictionary of the Hebrew Bible, under Hebrew articulation, and reversing the order to right to left, we have the same identical Hebrew for the man of both Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 as follows. And Clifton simply spells out the word man. Aleph Daleth Mem A-D-M <coughs> would be how we write that in Hebrew. And he says, how anyone gets something other than Adam with a capital A out of this, I'll never know. But add the Hebrew F and the Hebrew article to this, and it becomes absolute. How can anyone argue that the man, the F ha Adam, at Genesis 1.27, is a different person than the man, the F ha Adam, at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when it's the same identical Hebrew word with the same identical parts of speech? and at both places with the F and the article. But I guess anything goes when one becomes a pretzel twister. Clifton's favorite description for people who twist scripture. Actually, he says, I'm sorry, this is my note. I didn't distinguish between my notes and Clifton's when I typed this out today. Actually, the 6th and 8th day creation advocates. 
exploit the form of the word man in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 which has neither the which, which does not have the f but Genesis 127 refutes their chicanery because that is eth ha adam the same form I'm trying to type a correction in my notes here and I'm having a serious problem with this keyboard these genesis that these two creation people they'll point you and and I've been through this they'll point you to Genesis 126 where it says ha adam and it's simply translated Adam in English. I'm sorry, it's simply translated man in English. And then they'll point you to Genesis 2 7, where it says, Eth ha Adam. And they'll tell you that because the Eth is there, it's a different person. And in truth, the grammatical form in Genesis 2 7 and Genesis 1 27 are exactly the same in all the Hebrew manuscripts. So the Hebrew cannot be used as an argument at all to try to make the assertion or the claim that this Genesis 1 man is a different man than the man in Genesis chapter 2. You can't use Hebrew at all to prove that. The Hebrew proves the opposite. Thomas Davies, and I mentioned him, I think, last week, Thomas Davies realized that in Genesis 1.26 we had Ha-Adam and in Genesis 1.27 we had Eth-Ha-Adam, the same form as in Genesis 2.7. And Thomas Davies, who was a quack of the 19th century, quoted by Eli James, Thomas Davies tried to say that the man of Genesis 1.26 was a different man than the man of Genesis 1.27 and that doesn't work either because as we shall see in the next section where Clifton has his conclusion Ha-Adam is often used for the same Adamic race as Eth-Ha-Adam they're all the same Adam you can't use the Hebrew grammar to make different atoms. It doesn't work at all. In fact, it's ludicrous. So Clifton begins his conclusion. We have now covered all of the elements making up the Hebrew word for Adam at both Genesis 1.27 and Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And I have given you in this paper the 13 other places in the Old Testament that the same identical word Adam appears. Now he gives us a list of where these various forms appear. And in Genesis 1.27, so God created man, that's Eth-Ha-Adam. And in Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, and Yahweh, Yahweh God formed man, that's Eth-Ha-Adam. And at the end of verse seven, verse 7, and man became a living soul, that's only Ha-Adam. And in verse 8, there he put the man whom he had formed, that's Eth-Ha-Adam. In Genesis 3.24, so he drove out the man, that's Eth-Ha-Adam.
in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, And it repented Yahweh that he had made man, eth ha-adam. And in verse 7, I will destroy man, eth ha-adam. And then a little later in the verse, both man and beast, and that word for man is only ha-adam, the same way it appears in Genesis 1.26. And in Genesis chapter 9, in verse 6, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, that's ha-adam, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God he made man, eth ha-adam. And where it says, by man, we actually have a slightly different form of the word Adam, because it's not preceded with an eth or ham. It, it's preceded by a particle preposition, which, which is only a letter B, and means in, at, by, with, or among. And it's written as all one word. But that doesn't mean it's a different man. It's the same man. Clifton says, a paraphrase of Genesis 9, 6 might go something like this. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, whoso sheddeth ha-adam's blood, which is the word dam, by Adam shall his blood, Dom, be shed. For in the image of God he made Eth Ha Adam. Clifton, trying to show how ridiculous it is to say that these different forms of, of the word Adam in grammar can refer to different Adams. He says it is interesting to note here that the last two letters of Adam's name are the same Hebrew characters that articulate as dam, D-M, meaning blood. And his conclusion, the theory asserting that Genesis 1.27 is a record of the creation of the non-Adamic races is pure fiction. And of course it is. If we assert that the Adam of Genesis 1.26 is a different creature than the Adam of Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.7, then in Genesis 9.6 we must have three different Adams and four, because then we are compelled to add the Adam of Genesis 5.1. It's just incredible. This is the end of Clifton's original paper and our comments on it. Here I am going to repeat a portion of Pragmatic Genesis Part 1. I apologize in advance for repeating some of what we had just heard from Clifton, but I must keep stressing certain important points. We have one Adam in Genesis, in all of Genesis, with multiple grammatical forms, but it's all the same Adam. In the following examples from Scripture, we will see instances where the word Adam appears in many forms. Clifton only mentioned three. There is Adam, the generic noun, Ha-Adam, the noun accompanied with a definite article, and Eth-Ha-Adam, the article and noun further accompanied with the Hebrew word Eth, which by itself is often used as a preposition, or to show that Ha-Adam is the subject of a certain preposition. 
And we also have Al Ha Adam, El Ha Adam, and Vav Lamed Adam. These are all different grammatical forms. These are other prepositions affixed to the article and noun by the Makaf symbol which Clifton described in his paper. This word F, according to Strong's Concordance, has other meanings, but when it is used as a prefix to a noun, it is generally used to point out more definitely the object of a verb or preposition. Strong goes on to explain that for this reason it is unrepresented in English when used in this manner. Likewise, the enhanced Strong's dictionary that is built into Bibleworks says that it is an untranslatable mark of the accusative case, which in the language of grammarians is precisely what the original Strong says, but with different terms. It is a feature of grammar which has nothing to do with the nature of the object itself. Genesis 1.26, And God said, Let us make man, ha-adam, in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth. If the Genesis 2, verse 7 and 8 man is a separate man, then this Genesis 1 man has dominion over him. And if you think niggers came from Genesis chapter 1, we may as well be slaves to niggers, because they have dominion over us. How could you think such a thing? How could you imagine such a thing as an identity Christian is beyond me? Let us make man, ha-adam, in our image, and then in Genesis one twenty-seven. So, and that's a little conjunction the vav symbol. It means and. God created man, adam, in his own image. The conjunction in front of the verb in Genesis 1.27 demonstrates that the creating of man in that passage is a direct result of the proposition posited in Genesis 1.26. They're not two separate men. Both English and Greek translators understood this. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, And the Lord God formed Eth Ha-Adam, and man, Ha-Adam, the same form we see in Genesis 1.26, became a living soul. So Eth Ha-Adam, Ha-Adam, Adam, they're all the same men. You can't say that they're different men. When you look at all the grammar of the Hebrew in Genesis, it's ridiculous to imagine that different Atoms were created in these different verses. It's ludicrous. It's ridiculous that I even have to address this, or that Clifton even had to address it. Genesis 2.16, And the Lord God commanded the man, and there to form as Al-Ha-Adam. Is that a third form of Adam? Saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. This prefix, al, is a preposition meaning on, upon, over, or above, or referring to height. But like f often is, as Clifton explained, it too is unexpressed in English here. It doesn't need to be expressed in English. The word commanded takes care of it. 
if we wanted to express Al here, we would have to say, and the Lord God commanded over the man, put a command over the man, or made a command upon the man. And we don't need to say that in English. Genesis 2.19 <clears throat> And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam. That's another form, El-Ha-Adam. Another preposition. That phrase, El-Ha-Adam, is the noun with the article, the Adam, prefixed with the preposition which means to, into, or towards. So he brought them unto Adam. That comes from El. Unto comes from El, and Adam comes from Ha-Adam. And then in the later passage of the verse, the later part of the verse, and whatsoever Adam, Ha-Adam, called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam, Ha-Adam, the form we see in Genesis 1.26, gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, and that's another three words stuck together, that's Vav-Lamed-Adam, that's the letter V with the letter L and the word Adam. There was not a helpmeet for him. And the phrase Vav Lamed Adam is a, the, the Vav is a conjunction, and or but or etc. Prefixing another preposition. The Lamed, the L, which basically means for, or to, or towards, or belonging to, or in regard to, or according to. Hebrew had a lot of one-letter prepositions. They put one letter before a noun, and that was a preposition. They did it, there were actually three or four that we just mentioned. Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. That's not Ha-Adam, that's only Adam. There is no article at all. There is no F. In the day that God created man, and once again, that is only Adam, all by itself. No article, and no half. So is this a different Adam than the Ha-Adam of Genesis 1.26, or the F-Ha-Adam of Genesis 1.27 and 2.7 and 2.8? No, it's not a different Adam. The language here, directly relates this Adam to the Genesis chapter 1 Adam. Not to the Genesis chapter 2 Adam. This is the Adam all white men and women descended from. This Adam in Genesis chapter 5. The language is similar to Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27, but it's unlike Genesis 2-7. If they are not all the same Adam, then God has hopelessly confused his word. Let's read Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and verses 26 and 27 again. And God said, "Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth." So, and here's the important part, so God created man, and that's actually Ephadam, 
In his image, in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female, he created he them. So we see that in Genesis 1.27 and we go to Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam, Adam, all by itself. In the day that God created Adam, in the likeness of God made he him, in the likeness of God made he him. I think I have a repeat there. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. Now if you believe in an eighth day creation in Genesis chapter 2 you really got to believe in a ninth day creation here in Genesis chapter 5. He called their name Adam in the day when they were created. If you don't believe in a ninth day creation, but you believe in an eighth day creation, you're a hypocrite. You're an absolute hypocrite. Genesis chapter 5 verse 3, and Adam, and that's just the word Adam. There's no, in, in, in the language of Genesis chapter 5 verse 3 in the Hebrew, it just says, and Adam, A-D-M, no F, no Ha, no other prepositions, and Adam lived 130 years. Then in Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, And the Lord said, I will destroy man, F, Ha, Adam. Back to that form that we see in Genesis one twenty-seven and 2, 7, and 8. I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man, Adam, no F, no Ha, so is that another Adam? The Lord's going to destroy two different kinds of Adam here? That's not what it's saying. I could go on here. There's five or six other examples. In Genesis 6, 7, F, Ha, Adam. Uh, later in the verse, just Adam. In Genesis 7, 21, Ha, Adam. In Genesis 9, 6, Ha, Adam. F, Ha, Adam. In Genesis 11, 5, Ha, Adam. In Deuteronomy 4.32, since the day that God created man, Adam, upon the earth, no F, no Ha. Deuteronomy 32.8, when he separated the sons of Adam, Adam, that's it, no F, no Ha, just Adam. Isaiah 45.12, I have made the earth and created man, Adam, upon it. Not Adams, there's only one race of Adam in the creation. That's us. There's no other race of Adam. The niggers aren't a race of Adam. The Chinamen aren't a race of Adam. There's only one race of Adam. I have made the earth and created man or Adam upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all their host I have commanded. 1 Chronicles chapter 1. Adam. Just that word Adam. No F, no Ha. Adam, Sheth, Enosh. Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, that's a genealogy. So that's the name, Adam, without the definite article. It can only be interpreted as a name, Adam, in a line of all those other names. <coughs> so all these different grammatical forms are used in one place or another to describe basically the exact same entity. Either the individual founder 
of the race, the first individual of a race whom the entire race is named after, or the race itself. But it's all the same atom. There are no two different atoms, and you can't use the whole point of this, and I know it's probably too lengthy. The whole point of this is to show that you cannot use the Hebrew grammar to try to say that there were two different creations of Adam. It's absurd. And there's a greater sophistry, and that's the sophistry, sophistry of attempting to distinguish the formed versus created in relation to the creation of Adamic man. There was an argument put forth by certain clowns that the man who was created in Genesis chapter 1 must be a different man than the man who was formed in Genesis chapter 2. Of course, the Adam of Genesis chapter 5 was also created, where the word formed does not appear. Yet the same hypocrites who claim to be Israelites thereby must determine that their descent is from the Adam of Genesis chapter 5, who was created and not formed. If their argument is true, how could they have the Spirit of God imparted to the Adam of Genesis chapter 2? Of course, their argument is childish and contrary to Scripture. You can't say, oh, we're special, we're formed in Genesis chapter 2. In the eighth day, we're not created like those Cretan atoms, those low-life atoms in Genesis chapter 1. We were formed. Well, every Adamic individual descended from Seth. Or we're not Adamic. It's that simple. And in Genesis chapter 5, it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Every person I ever knew in Christian identity would say, oh, that's us. That's our white race. And I agree. But then it says in the day that God created man, not formed, created. So that argument, it's a loser. It's a huge loser. It's childish. Genesis 1.27 So God created man in his own image. <coughs> Genesis 2.7 And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Genesis 5.1 In the day that God created man. Deuteronomy 4.32 since the day that God created man upon the earth. Deuteronomy 32.18 Of the rock that begot thee, thou art unmindful, and hast forgotten God that formed thee. Job 33.6 Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. I also am formed out of the clay. Ezekiel 21-29 I will judge thee in the place where thou wast created, in the land of thy nativity. Malachi chapter 2 verse 10 Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? I remember Eli James came up with this formed versus created article. I'm sure it was around beforehand. 
But he hit me with this shit, and he thought he was so smart. And he was such a damned idiot. He was such a dummy. Were we formed, or were we created? The answer is simple. And it's answered in Isaiah 43.1. We were both formed and created. How about that? Isaiah 43.1. But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. Now are you going to tell me that Jacob and Israel are two different things because one was created and one was formed? Are you kidding me? Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. And if that's not enough, let's read Isaiah 43.7. Even everyone that is called by my name. For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yeah, I have made him. How do you like that? Created, formed, and made. The arguments over the Adam that was formed versus the Adam that was created are sheer sophistry because they are merely different descriptions of the creation of the same Adam. There was only one Adam created in Genesis chapter 1 on the sixth day of creation. Further details of that creation and what happened thereafter are given from Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 through the end of Genesis chapter 4. The same creation was mentioned again in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. And the language there related our Adamic race to the man created in Genesis chapter 1. The Adam of Genesis chapter 5 was created. The same word used in Genesis chapter 1. We were created and we were formed. We were made in the image of God. We were endowed with the Spirit of God. And we are the only race of man ever mentioned in all the accounts of the creation of God. There were no niggers in God's creation. You can't try to make a sixth day creation distinct from, the eighth, from an eighth day creation to squeeze in some niggers. It don't work. That is the truth. It shall stand in the face of all history and scripture. And if we do not get the beginning right, we will never understand the rest of the Bible, or what the end shall be in our own future. This truth will eventually come to dominate Christian identity, as it is the only teaching that provides an absolutely unshakable foundation for understanding the issue of race in Scripture. One can either accept it or face being marginalized as your compromise on the issue of race becomes more and more evident in the progress of time. I said much more on this topic in my Pragmatic Genesis series and provided references to all of the proofs required, but I cannot possibly repeat them all here. When we return to this topic as early as next Saturday, we will discuss Adam's commission. Once again through the papers of Clifton Emmeheiser. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. I hope I didn't beat you to death with Adams and Etha Adams and Ha Adams and all the other forms. Thank you and good night.